Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Co. Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast, and ours too. I am your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And we are going to be talking this week about the episode Trial by Error. And Bridget, do you want to give us a brief rundown of what this episode's about? Sure. Um, This episode is a riff on the movie 12 Angry Men. Uh, So essentially, Jessica's serving as the foreperson of a jury, and they are putting together the pieces of a potential murder case to figure out what actually happened. Um, But in a really cool, I think, way, the episode um, only gives us bits and pieces and flashbacks. So we start, you know, we see like the setup to the murder or to an accident, really. And then we cut to like jury deliberations. So throughout the episode, we're just flashing back to what happened as this man and woman um, presumably had an affair and the husband caught them and the man murdered the husband in self-defense. But of course, that's not at all what happened. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I love the allusion to 12 Angry Men, one of my favorite movies from, you know, classic Hollywood. It's a brilliantly constructed movie and I think it's a brilliantly constructed episode. And I did appreciate like the narrative conceit of moving back and forth through time because as you rightly point out like we as viewers are sort of denied this sort of narrative cohesiveness that we normally get within a murder she wrote episode so it's kind of challenging in a way to sort of keep track of what's going on but it i think nicely captures you know the heated atmosphere that very often takes place during jury duty and my mom gets called for jury duty all the time i and my entire 30 years of life have never been called so far so i just found that you know Interesting. I had to- well, you just jinxed it and you will yeah, be tomorrow. I, it's already in the mail. It will be in my mailbox tomorrow. <laughs> I think, you know, TJ, this is, episode was January 12th. So it's like the comeback from hiatus episode. And I bet it was just like so fun to write for them because it is such a departure from how they normally structure episodes. And I bet for it was probably there's just a lot of exposition mm-hmm. because we're, it's jury deliberation. So they're reviewing evidence and reviewing testimony. Um, so in that sense, for an actor, I think it would be a little bit challenging because it's just it's a lot of monologuing on Angela Lansbury's part. Right. And then we cut to a flashback, but usually it's all in voiceover, you know, so it's just it's a lot of monologuing here um, from various actors. But I think it must still have been fun to do because most of it's on one set mm-hmm. in the jury room. Yeah. Uh, and it's just this sort of really tight episode. I just think it would it's really fun. It's just a different from most murder she wrote. Right. I mean, it feels very much like like almost like a televised play. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as in keeping, of course, with 12 Angry Men, which was a play itself. So it's, you know, there's that interesting dynamic. That, as you say, the restricted spatial geography of the jury deliberation room, which is, you know, in marked contrast to most other episodes where we're wandering around all over the place. But here we just basically have that set. And then the few moments when we get the flashbacks to the actual apartment where the murder took place. And I think, you know, in terms of we – sh- we should talk about, like, what the actual crime was, too, because um, I only said what the crime wasn't <laughs> in my intro. But I think that, too, is a really fun story. So it's like – what is happening? What, what was that? Is there an air raid? <sighs> Welcome to my, uh, my life. <laughs> it sounded like bomber planes. 
I might be slightly traumatized from just having watched All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay, so we should talk about the crime itself because I've only said what it wasn't, um, which is that in the beginning of the episode, we see a car accident. It's actually quite graphic for Murder, She Wrote. And we see this guy who's so clearly faking it when he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. It was an accident. Is she going to die? And then the wife looks at him and goes, why? I don't understand, right? It's so clear that he like tried to kill her by having an accident. And um, we're told she wasn't wearing her seatbelt, which is our little reminder that this is the 1980s where people actually had to debate things like seatbelt use. I remember those debates. Yeah, I remember being a little kid in the back of my grandparents' car and like yelling at them that they weren't wearing a seatbelt. And they were like, why would we wear a seatbelt? Anyway, so we then he goes to a bar and presumably meets a woman and has like goes home with her as a one night stand with a stranger. But we learn throughout the testimony they've been seen together at a motel several times. It's an ongoing affair. And we think initially that her husband heard that they went home together in an angry rage came over. There was a fight. And Mark, our bad guy, killed him in self-defense. And so that's what the trial is. But actually, Mark wasn't even there. Mark sneaked to the hospital because he meant to kill his wife in the accident and she didn't die. So he sneaked to the hospital to suffocate her so she would die. And in the meantime, the woman he was pretending to sleep with actually murdered her husband because he came home and tried to hurt her. So she's kind of did it in self-defense, but she's also, like, not totally a good person because she's having an affair with this guy who's, like, a cold-blooded murderer. So it's all very complicated, and I just think it makes such an interesting story. Yeah, I mean, there are certain shades of Agatha Christie, it seems like, a little bit with the, you know, the unexpected twist there at the end where it reveals that the husband that the husband murdered the wife, but, you know, that there were – everyone murdered someone else, but not who we think. <laughs> Yes. I mean, that's the best part of this, right? Is so everybody wants to find this guy not guilty. And Jessica's like, hold up, hold up. We need to go over the evidence. So we think they're going to lead to a guilty conviction. But in fact, they arrive at not guilty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Jessica, like, even confronts the guy out in the hall, which I'm not even sure if that's legal. Um, and then... Right. Or or at the very least, ethical. <laughs> right. In terms of, like, jur- juridical ethics. <laughs> and he's like, hey, thanks for letting me off. And she's like, uh-huh. Yeah, whatever. Fuck you, you know? And he's like, I'm never going to forget you. And she's like, oh, I'm sure you won't. And then he's summarily arrested for the real crime of murdering his wife. Right. And then he looks back at her and Jessica has this, you know, sort of, I wouldn't call it smug, but it's just putting its toe on the line of smugness in terms of she knows that she has caught the culprit. You know, and so that's sort of the freeze frame we get is a more, you know, more somber look than we normally get with Jessica. Like, there's no merry laugh like we sometimes get. Yeah, this two in a row where we end with a sort of um, sad or serious note and not our typical murder she wrote. Mm. Everything is happy at the end, you know, sort of final scene. Right. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, like, what happens in that jury room, because I think that the general public has sort of an idea of what happens in a jury, but I think that this episode does a really good job actually of showing how complicated it can get to reach a verdict. Like you think that it's cut, like we like to believe, I think collectively that justice is sort of cut and dry that, you know, the justice system like medicine works a certain way. And we sort of just accept that. But I think one of the things this episode does very well is to show how easily 
a simple clear-cut case can actually devolve into something far more complicated, you know, as they sort of engage with what does reasonable doubt mean, since that is the legal standard to determine whether someone's guilty or innocent. And it's not as like, it's not as um, unambiguous as we might like. I think that that's one of the things the episode does really well, is to sort of show in this constant interplay between these different characters, how fraught a jury deliberation can often become, even when it's seemingly so, you know, simplistic. I think that you have um, a very generous reading of those jury deliberation scenes. I find them as a viewer to be quite painful um, because most of the other jurors are just like being angry and stupid. And it's <laughs> and to drag the story out, there's a lot of like, well, come on, everybody knows. Can't we just hurry up and vote? And then it's, Jessica has to be like, I'm sorry. I think we need to discuss and so it's, it's just, it's the same shtick every time. And it just That's makes true. me sort of hate all of them. Um, yeah. But you know what we can talk about is um, who's in, on the jury, because it's actually kind of an embarrassment of TV actor riches. Yes, please do enlighten us. I mean, obviously, we're gonna have to gush about Vicki Lawrence, because I will gush about Vicki Lawrence anytime she appears in literally anything. Um, I, I think that she is just such a dynamic screen presence whenever she shows up. Like, yeah, I, I just love her. I mean, obviously, I love her for Mama's Family and the Carol Burnett show. But even in her guest appearances, she's just so feisty. Like, there's a feistiness <laughs> to, like, to Vicki Lawrence's sort of star text that I've always enjoyed. I feel like she's a bit wasted in this episode because she too. has very few lines and really doesn't get to shine in that kooky Vicki Lawrence way. Um, but she is one of the jurors. And this was when... Mama's Family was on that break between its broadcast run and when it went into syndication. So that's why she was available. Because I was like, wait, isn't she busy right now? And then we also have um, Brock Peters, who's probably best known as playing Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, I'm a Star Trek girl. So for me, he will always be Ben Sisko's dad on Deep Space Nine, for those of you who understand that reference. Um, we also have Lenore Kasdorf, who we last saw in It's a Dog's Life. She was one of the horrible children of the rich guy who died. Uh, and she also ended up dead because <laughs> she was so horrible. So we just, we also have on the jury uh, Richard Sanders, who is Les Nessman from WKRP in Cincinnati. So it's, and Alan Miller, another like storied TV actor. I mean, we have a lot of like amazing people. And then playing Becky, the woman whose husband died, is Doran Clark, who we last saw in um, the second episode of the series, Deadly Lady where she was the good daughter, the Cordelia of the King Lear. And now she's a bad lady. Um, and then we have like this cameo by um, the skipper from Gilligan's Island. Yes, Alan Hale. I mean, this episode is bananas with guest stars. I mean, I love the Alan Hale. He's the sort of kooky hotel owner who has seen them, you know, f having their little liaisons when they're insisting that they haven't been having an affair. Um, he... And if I can also do a deep cut, um, there's a guy who has a very small part in this episode. His only function is to see the two people at the bar hook up and then call the husband and tell them that they're hooking up. And that guy, his name is the character's name is Johnny Detweiler. He is played by the creep from Adventures in Babysitting, which is one of the all-time best movies of the 1980s. It is, as you say, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to these various guests. Yeah. Stars. Although none of them get, as you, but on the other hand, none of them get a particularly like, juicy role per se. Like none of them really have a lot of things to do. But it's nice that they're getting work at least, right? 
they're all getting work. They're all getting paid. It's really fun for us and as an audience. And I think actually it kind of works nicely because it it's very much an ensemble episode. I mean, even the guy who's our murderer and on trial, like he seems no more important than anybody else, mm-hmm. you know, narratively. So it's really a great ensemble episode. Yes. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So what else do we have to talk about? <laughs> um, I think it's adorable. Like we open, you know, we, we, we open with the scene. And then when we cut to the jury deliberations, we start with this like sort of slow pan across the jury. And it and, and then they cut to the judge saying blah, 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 four person. And then it cuts and we see that Jessica is indeed sitting in the first chair as the four person. And I have to tell you, Teach, like this is 1986. I love that every single time they said four person. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, today is not even always standard. And this is 1986. I mean, this is really progressive language. Yeah, that is true. I hadn't. I actually hadn't even noticed that. But I'm glad that you brought that up because, you know, here is Murder Show being progressive even in the 1980s. I love the way that they sneak in stuff like that, you know? Like, they sneak in little bits of... Of feminism, I think, in these ways that are um, supposed to just be taken for granted. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like it's like making a statement. Right. You know, but it clearly is. Jessica's the four person and she's being called that. She's not being called a foreman. Or for a woman, for that matter. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, it, I can really, I can't think of anyone who's better suited to the role of a four person, a jury four person than Jessica Fletcher. Like, you know, with her, with her analytical mind, but also her, like, you know, Ability to take control of a given situation, I think she's an ideal choice. Although clearly many of the other jurors do not think so, because they continue to, like, cast dispersions on her because of her, you know, as they repeatedly refer to it as, like, her overactive imagination, which is making her believe that things aren't as they seem. I know. It's so... But, you know, I you have to respect Jessica because, I mean, part of what... Part of the way the episode is structured is, like, if Jessica wasn't like, you guys, we need to review each piece of testimony then we as viewers wouldn't know what the story is at all, right? right. There'd be no episode. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of like within this narrative world, functioning as the foreperson, Jessica is really committed to the exercise of law. Mm-hmm. They she they do take an initial vote, um, but then she's like, no, we're not just going to keep voting. Like we need to go through each yep. piece of evidence. And she seems to have like a real respect for that. And I think that makes sense in terms of character. If we think about her as a mystery writer, as someone who wants to put clues together to build a story, but it also just shows like what a good citizen she is. You know, we're not going to make a hasty decision here. We are going to take our time. We're going to go through every bit of evidence as we need to. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, what I think really works or sets this episode apart is as you say, this meticulous putting together of evidence, because normally what happens is, you know, there's this, aha moment or the eureka moment where jessica realizes that something is amiss and then she goes and then everything's revealed that that's sort of you know it's left to us as the audience to put the pieces together on our own and then it's brought together for us but i think what Mm -hmm. makes this episode so outstanding is that it actually sort of helps us to understand how jessica's mind works in a way that we don't always get like because we can watch the actual steps that take place as it happens yeah i mean we actually see the flashback to the murder three times and once we think, oh, Mark and Becky were in bed together and the husband burst in, then we realize, no, we flash back again. Actually, they're fully clothed. They set it up so the husband could burst in and they could deliberately kill him. Nope. Final moment. You know, so we we, we sort of get all these like, maybe this happened, maybe this happened. And it's not actually until they acquit Mark and Jess 
asks the DA if she can sit down with him, which is another thing I'm not sure if this is like really allowed. <laughs> I was gonna say this. I was gonna say I also was like, it's you know, really I'm like, is this really. And she sits down with the DA <laughs> and Becky and Becky's attorney, and then finally Becky tells us how it actually happened, and we flash back to the correct story, which is that Mark isn't even there, and it's just. So I think it's it's just really interesting that we keep seeing. You know, the same crime play out in different ways as the pieces are getting put together. And it really does show us how Jessica is, like, logicking all of this out. But I guess my question, Teach, is, like, you know, when they when they call people for jury duty, they do, like, a whittling out of people based on, you know, certain criteria. And uh, I just – if I were defending someone for murder, as an attorney, like, the first juror I would vote to throw out would be the murder mystery writer. I, too, was thinking about that. I was like, this deter- <laughs> this defense attorney is being a bit negligent in, like, their jury selection <laughs> criteria because, you know, this is not the kind of person that you want if you want your client to get off. Although, as it turns out, they did, he did get off, just not for that particular crime. <laughs> so maybe, he, maybe, right. the, his, maybe the defense attorney knew something that we didn't. Uh, maybe he read her books and was like, She's not going to be able to figure this out. <laughs> and I have to say, I mean, like sometimes, you know, there are sort of um, twists and turns or, you know, deceptions in an episode. But it's, I think that one of the things I liked about this episode is as soon as we saw those two meeting in the bar, at least I as a viewer was like, they clearly know each other. This is not just a meet cute. Like this is, there's something oh, yes yeah. here. Even though... Just as you can tell immediately from the accident, right? Like, they meet in the bar, they're pretending they just met each other. It's super suspicious. Right, his overwrought response to the doctors, like, by the way, you know, she she might never walk again. Well, I think that's that's where he went wrong as a criminal. I think that all the murderers on Murder, She Wrote, obviously they do something wrong with it because they get caught. But, like, his, he was really stupid. I mean, <laughs> his wife is in an accident. She nearly dies. And the doctors are like, okay, she didn't die. Do you want to see her? And he's like, oh, no, I couldn't bear it. And then, <laughs> like, so he goes to a bar to get drunk and ends up going home with someone because he feels so guilty. He just can't stand to think about the hospital. Like, that is so suspicious. The first, I would be, like, glued to my wife's bedside. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, what I appreciate is that this episode doesn't shy away from, like, just how, like, really kind of horrifying this crime is. Like, at mm-hmm. least with, you know, the adulteresses, you know, we know that there's her husband has been abusive. Like we know, like mm-hmm. diegetically, that he's kind of a monster. So not saying he deserves mm-hmm. to die, obviously, but he's not a good guy. But there's nothing that yeah. Mark's wife has done improperly, other than be married to him. Like, and then, yeah, and they've only been married less than a year, right? And then he smug- like first of all, he tries to kill her in this car accident, you know, and then she's going to be you know paralyzed from the waist down, and then he smothers her in her bed. In the, like, I don't know, it's just. Part of that is something, there's something deeply, viscerally unsettling about the cold-bloodedness of that. Oh, yeah. Like, because smothering is is a really awful way to go. (laughs) That's why I'm saying that, you know, I, I, I think the episode is a little bit confusing about how we're supposed to be left feeling about Becky. Mm -hmm. Because uh, it's like, we're, we have this flashback where we see her husband, like, physically assaulting her and that... She ultimately hits him with a fireplace poker in self-defense, right? But at the same time, she is cheating on him, which does not justify murder in any way, right? Or violence in any way. I want to be clear about that, right? Although they are separated. Yeah, exactly. And and but but the person she's cheating with or, or having an affair with or whatever we don't call it is um like 
he literally tells her that he's going to try to kill his wife and it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work out, he calls her and is like, hey, I need you to help me al- be, be my alibi. Right. So like she is an accomplice to this really cold-blooded, gross guy. Like, And she confesses in the end and tells everything and cuts a deal so that Mark can go to jail. So I guess I'm just sort of left like not sure how the episode wants us to feel about her. In some ways, it seems to be presenting her as not bad. Mm-hmm. You know, but then in other ways, it's like, actually, she's really horrible. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think you're right. And I do think that she, what makes her troubling is that she's far more morally ambiguous than Mark is. Like, mm-hmm. his crime is clearly, like, just awful. <laughs> like, there's just no other way mm-hmm. to describe it between the car accident and then smothering her in the hospital bed. Um, but as you say, like, Becky's flaws are just morally complicated. And it's, I, I'm not, I'm not sure if the episode intends to be this mm-hmm. ambiguous or whether it was just invested so much of its narrative energy in the Mark plot that it kind of forgot to fully flush out what was happening with the Becky plot. Mm-hmm. Except for, the, as we say, that weird meeting between her defense attorney and Jessica and the mm-hmm. DA, which is... Her defense attorney sucks, too, because he's like... <laughs> Jessica's like, hey, can I um, tell you what I think happened? And then the defense attorney is, like, arguing with Jessica. And, and I, I, I have never studied the law. I am not an attorney. I'm not a member of the bar. I would be like, I'm not listening to this. Grab my client and walk out. And instead, the guy's like, no, uh, <laughs> like, what kind of defense attorney are yeah, you? He did seem a bit credulous and a bit too quick to like <laughs> get, to capitulate to Jessica's, you know, assault, verbal assault. It's just like, and then Becky caves and confesses, and the attorney's like, yeah, okay, I guess uh, let's cut a deal so you don't end up in prison for the rest of your life. I defended you, right? They need to get one of the. They need to get one of the defense attorneys from the uh, the Law and Order universe. Like that's those are the DAs who know the defense attorneys who know what they're doing. But yeah, as we've said before, there's some questionable legal twists and turns with the plot here. Yeah, I mean, also I think by necessity, you know, it's just a necessity of the writing the episode, and I think also um, what ends up happening are some of the clues that Jessica puts together from the testimony. It's like I think the homicide detectives would have figured that out, like. The neighbor says, oh, I saw, you know, the guy's car there for hours, but apparently the guy had just arrived and immediately, you know, died. So it's just like the homicide detectives would have figured that out, you know. So there's some weird stuff, but I think we have to give it a pass. It's just the function of writing a TV episode and having clues for the audience. Right. But let's – I'm glad you brought up the neighbor because that is one of my favorite, like, moments in the episode is the very <laughs> fussy – queer. Yeah, as I say, the very fussy, obviously <laughs> queer neighbor who shows up on the witness stand. Aaron, my partner, looked at me and was like, wow, it's you. Because, <laughs> you know, he just has this particularly, it's just queer. Like, there's no other way to put it. Like, he's just one of those queer characters that pops up in, car- in you know, walk-on roles in various TV shows. That can can are you not explain explic- what specific breed of queer he is so that people who don't know you can understand why I find that hilarious? He's the kind of queer who's probably spending a Saturday night in his leather armchair with a book, a caftan over his lap with the cat sitting on his lap purring while he's reading and sipping his lemon tea. Well, that sounds very cozy. It actually sounds I mean, like something Jessica would do. Yeah, no, but that's this that's this kind of guy who might actually get up and peer out the window to see what's happening with the neighborhood whenever something's going awry. Indeed, he did, right? <laughs> That's the kind of queer I, I've already sketched out a, a biography for this person. Like, you know. And doesn't he, t- 
doesn't he say on the witness stand that um like the guy's car was blocking his driveway but he knows better to com- than to complain because the guy's so yes, scary he's the one who says that if it hadn't been you know if mark hadn't killed him he would have killed mark like he's like he was pretty clear about the violence of becky's husband which is i think contributes to that moral complexity or ambiguity that we talked about earlier right. so we know what a basic like crazy person he is and is and how violent he is toward pretty much everyone in his life it's a little bit frustrating that every time we encounter domestic violence in murder she wrote um it ends in the wife having to kill the husband uh i'm frustrated that that's the only solution however it's 1986 and i do applaud the series because the series always without fail wants us to empathize with the abused woman mm-hmm like they had no other choice. They were protecting themselves. They were frightened. You know, it's never like we're never supposed to see them as evil killers. Yeah. I mean, that's true. Even if Becky, I mean, obviously, since she gets to cut the deal, not Mark, you know. Yeah. And can we just talk briefly about the reenactment scenes? Because like, mm-hmm. I, I've seen many murder scenes in Murder, Shiro. This has to be one of the least convincing. <laughs> Because, like, the way it's staged is the, the poker, like, hits his neck and then he just, like, falls over. And I'm just like... Yeah, it's like the Vulcan nerve pinch. Yeah, but this isn't Star Trek. <laughs> I know. Why didn't why don't they show him wha- getting whacked on the head? Is that what you're thinking? Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, or bludgeoning, you know, some kind of bludgeoning. Right? I mean, because it's not like... It's just like a little tap shy. on the neck. Yeah, I'm just like... And what? It crushed his larynx? Like, what's happening here? <laughs> like, I... I I was confused about the actual mechanics, <laughs> considering how often, you know, in other cases we've seen more, not necessarily explicit, but at least more transparent how the actual death took place. Yeah. It just struck me as being a little bit stagey. It maybe perhaps fitting in with the rest of the staginess of this particular episode, but even so, it was just like, not really sure how this is convincing as a death scene, but okay. You know, I never thought about that, um, but you're totally right. And in fact, now that I'm thinking about it, that that scene we get at the beginning of the episode, the scene that opens the episode with the, the wreckage of the car accident and the, the woman being pulled out and all of the blood. and I mean, it's so much more gory and graphic and violent yeah. than the scene where someone is getting whacked to death with a fireplace poker. But actually, it just like – you guys, it, it's the side of the neck. It's not it's- like the back of the neck where it could have severed the spinal cord or the front where it could have like – crushed his windpipe and he suffocated it's like this weird little side tap it's so bizarre yeah like i said it's just it's just <laughs> compared to so many other murder she wrote episodes with you know people getting hit in the head with heavy blunt objects this one was just sort of like mm-hmm. not sure i'm buying exactly how one you know dies from this kind <laughs> of particular injury but okay yeah. well good then we're not making an episode where we're giving people ideas that's true <laughs> Although, as we've seen from, you know, as we've seen from Murder, She Wrote, like, it never works out anyway. There's always going to be an intrepid retired school teacher slash bestselling author to f- track you down. Either that or a fussy detective from Belgium or, you know, an elderly spinster from a small British town. Someone's going to catch up. A sloppy guy in a trench coat from Los Angeles. Yep. <laughs> or or a southern detective or a southern defense attorney with a thick drawl, you know, whatever. So who's that? Matlock. Oh, I don't like Matlock. Mm, well, you're not old enough to like him yet. <laughs> Once you hit 50 or 60, then you'll start liking Matlock. <laughs> it's a law. Um, he wasn't a defense attorney? Yes, he was, wasn't he? Yeah. Isn't Matlock a defense attorney? 
Well, you just said he was going to find the killer. Is that yeah. what happens in Matlock? You can tell how little I, I know say, about Matlock. Is that what happens? He has to find who the real yes. killer is. So it's like Perry yeah. Mason. All right. So he's not a sleuth. He's an attorney. Okay. Listen. 12 Angry Men. Are you looking up Matlock now on your phone? Yes. I was correct. <laughs> he is a defense attorney. <laughs> well, I knew he was an attorney, but I didn't understand the sleuthing part of it. Um so what I think is interesting is that 12 Angry Men, It's the whole message of that movie is uh, don't be a sheeple, right? Like don't let your ra- latent racism lead you into think not thinking critically about something because everybody mm-hmm. thinks the guy's guilty at first and it's number one, they're prejudiced because he's a black suspect and number two, just because everybody else thinks so, right? And that's like the message of the movie. Um, this one kind of just the opposite. Everyone thinks this guy is not guilty. And we have to like, wait a second, wait a second. Like, are we just being sheeple here? But actually, like, it doesn't really work as like a foil to that, you know? Because he is not guilty. Right. And it has nothing to do with racism. And so I think um, there's a, a different inner text that I think works better. It's an episode of Seventh Heaven. Do you remember that show from like the WB back in the day? Unfortunately, they did yes. an episode that was Twelve Angry Men. Um, except it started that everyone they took the first vote. Everyone thought the black suspect was not guilty, and the guy Reverend Camden, actually, who's playing the four person in Jessica's role, has to convince them that they're just letting their liberal values get in the way of the truth, which is a very curious message. Wow, <laughs> that's today's trivia, kids. Yeah, it's so- called Twelve Angry People. The episode. Wow. So in this episode, we've not only referenced Columbo, Poirot, Marple, Matlock, we've now addressed Seventh Heaven. So this has been quite an intertext and Mama's family. So this has been quite an intertextual feast for our <laughs> listeners this week. <laughs> It'll be on our trivia. In which episode did we reference the most intertexts? Yep, that's true. All right. What else do you want to say about this episode? Did you like it? Thumbs up, thumbs down? I think it's a thumbs up. I really did enjoy this one. Yeah, I think this one is really fun. I quite like it. That's all I got. That's all I got. All right. Okay. All right. Well, join us next week when we will be coming back to talk about another fabulous episode of Murder, She Wrote, which takes place in everyone's favorite small main town, Cabot Cove. So for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I am TJ West. I'm Bridget Keyes. And we will see you next week. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.